Welcome to the Gov Innovator Podcast. I'm Andy Feldman. Our focus today is insights from a longtime observer and advocate for evidence-based policy, David Anderson, who serves as vice president of evidence-based policy at Arnold Ventures. Here's a clip. Yeah, one of the things that we've noticed over the years, both in funding RCTs and in uh, just being consumers of the evaluation literature, is that the one thing that all areas where randomized controlled trials have been conducted have in common is that there are once areas where people said it was impossible to do RCTs. Arnold Ventures launched its evidence-based policy initiative in 2015, in large part to increase the number of social policy programs with strong evidence behind them. To do that, the team funds randomized control trials of programs in social policy whose prior evidence has shown the potential for sizable effects on education, earnings, crime, and other important outcomes. To date, it has funded over 100 RCTs and disseminates the findings through its Straight Talk on Evidence and Social Programs That Work websites. To hear lessons from that work and also broader observations from someone working to advance evidence-based policy for almost two decades, we're joined by David Anderson. He's the Vice President of Evidence-Based Policy at Arnold Ventures and, before joining AV, was the Vice President of the Coalition for Evidence-Based Policy. He joins us from Denver. Dave, it's good to have you with us. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Andy. So Dave, before we dive into the lessons from the AV Evidence-Based Policy Initiative, tell us some of your broader observations of the evidence movement in social policy over recent decades. What comes to mind as some of the important lessons? That's a good question. And I, I guess the, the big lesson that we've, we've learned <laughs> kind of over and over again over the years uh, is that it's really hard to find things that work. Uh, particularly to you know in a find in a well conducted randomized control trial uh, you know a program or intervention that works in a meaningful way it really moves the needle on an important outcome and you know this is a pattern that we've seen across all areas where rigorous evaluations have been conducted whether in, in medicine or business uh, various areas of social policy that the hit rate in terms of identifying programs that really do you know improve people's lives in a meaningful way tends to be in sort of the fifteen to twenty percent range in terms of you know all of the RCTs that are conducted. And, you know, that's a, that's disappointing. Um, obviously we would want that to be higher, but I think it's also not that surprising because, you know, to, to the credit of all the folks working in this field and, you know, as practitioners or researchers, we're trying to usually solve really hard problems, things that have been with us for a long time, you know, poverty, educational failure, crime, healthcare disparities, uh, so it makes sense that a lot of things that we would try to address those problems, you know, wouldn't work. And so I think we shouldn't get discouraged by that. It should just sort of uh, embolden us to be more systematic and strategic about where we target those efforts so we can maximize our chances of finding things that work in a meaningful way. That's really useful, Dave. Many of the things we believe and hope will be effective are shown not to work. And when things are found to be effective, then the question is, are they replicable? In other words, will they work as well in Miami as they do in Milwaukee and so on? The AV Evidence-Based Policy Initiative is funding replication studies to build evidence directly on those questions. What are some of the lessons learned so far? Well, we've learned a lot. And I think, I guess, building off of sort of the broader lesson that I was just talking about, you know, I mentioned before that the sort of the hit rate for, uh, you know, finding things that meaningfully improve outcomes is often in the 15 to 20% range when it's been examined. 
we're trying to boost that up. We sort of think it a, a little bit about, you know, like a, a batting average in baseball. You know, if you're, if you're a great hitter in baseball, you're getting a hit 30% of the time or more. So 300 batting average. And we're trying to get the batting average up into that range. And, and so far we're seeing that in terms of the RCTs we funded that have meaningful interim or, or final results. We're seeing, you know, positive significant effects on important outcomes in about 30 to 40% of, of the trials. And, and we think that's, you know, that's good. And we'd like to get it higher, but, but honestly, we do sort of thinking about it in baseball terms, that that's a high batting average, we're hitting over 300, but the real trick is to find things that will work across multiple studies, multiple sites. And the good news is, you know, even though the list is not as long as we would like, the list is growing of programs that, that fall in that category. This hasn't been shown. You can replicate positive effects on important outcomes. Uh, one example that we're really excited about right now uh, is a study that just came out uh, of a program called Bottom Line, which it basically helps low-income high school students, many of whom would be the first in their families to go to college. It helps them navigate the, the college application and financial aid process, identify a school that's not just good for them academically, but also financially, so they don't come out with a ton of debt uh, if they can avoid it. And then once they're in college, provides them with ongoing mentoring to help them you know, address any challenges that come up along the way that might you know, convince them to drop out. And the study that just came out showed that the program actually does work in a big way. It, it increases bachelor's degree receipt by eight percentage points. Uh, 55% of the bottom line group graduated versus 47% of the control group. And that top line finding in itself is exciting, but what's even more exciting is that this was a multi-site trial. So there were three different sites in the study uh, two in Massachusetts, one in New York, and across all sites, the, the effect was consistent. So it showed that, you know, it wasn't just driven by one site with a charismatic leader or where just, you know, everything came together in a perfect implementation. It showed that this thing could be done and done effectively across different places. And it raises hopes that, you know, we could do it in, in more places around the country. Uh, obviously, we're always uh, advocates for more research to, to see if that, you know, that pans out. But we think that's a really promising sign. For sure. And I will um, include a link for our listeners on the podcast website to those bottom line findings. I want to ask you one final question, which is what is your advice to the research community and to evidence advocates based on the observations that you shared with us today? Yeah. So I guess a couple couple pieces of advice, which I think at, at first glance may seem contradictory. The first is to not rush into doing a randomized trial prematurely. I think this would maybe surprise a lot of people who've known our team over the years. We're big advocates for doing randomized control trials. We believe they should be done more widely and that we can learn a lot from them. But probably the most common piece of advice that we've given over the years to practitioners or researchers that have come to us is you know, you're not ready to do a randomized trial. And the reasons often are you know, the, the program that they're looking to test it's not fully developed. They don't exactly know what it is yet. So you, you want to have a well-developed intervention before you do a randomized trial because you want to know what, what is the it that you're testing. Also, sometimes you might have a well-developed program, but it's just never been field tested in the real world. So it's a sort of a theoretical model. And then ideally, you would want to have maybe some initial research you know, before an RCT, maybe a comparison group study uh, or maybe a small randomized trial before jumping to a large definitive randomized trial. But to do some of that earlier research to see, you know, is there a signal from prior research suggesting that you could have a meaningful effect on important outcomes? So that's, that's one piece is don't do an RCT prematurely. 
But the second thing I would say is a lot of times there are cases where you've got kind of the goal, you're in the Goldilocks zone. It's just right. You've got a program that's well-developed. It's been field tested. There's some suggestive prior evidence and people just sort of prematurely dismiss the idea of doing a randomized trial that we've heard a lot of times that people will say, yeah, we love RCTs. We definitely think they should be done, but it's just not possible for our program for X, Y, and Z reason. And in some cases, that's true. You can't always do an RCT. We're not naive about that. But what we found is oftentimes you kick the tires, you do a little creative thinking. Randomized trials can be done more often than people often think. There are ways to bring costs down if cost is a concern by measuring outcomes using administrative data uh, that are already being collected for other purposes. And there are often just creative ways to structure the program to, to enable a randomized control trial. You know, one of the things that we've noticed over the years, both in funding RCTs and in uh, just being consumers of the evaluation literature, is that the one thing that all areas where randomized control trials have been conducted have in common is that there are once areas where people said it was impossible to do RCTs. And over the, you know, over the last 25, 30 years, we've seen sort of a burgeoning, a blossoming of, of different areas where more and more RCTs are being done. Uh, you know, just one example that you could look at is, you know, we have a, a page on our website where we have summaries of the RCTs we funded. And I think there's about a, a dozen different uh, policy areas where we funded RCTs from, you know, regulatory policy to healthcare to early childhood to education to workforce to criminal justice. So there's a lot of areas where RCTs can be conducted. And I would also just say, you know, we have a, a site called Social Programs That Work where we, we profile programs that have been shown in well-conducted trials to produce sizable sustained effects on important outcomes. And again, there's, a, you know, I think a dozen different policy areas you know, represented there. So it just sort of suggests that there's a lot of places where we can use this tool. Um, and it, it just makes sense to, to think that through. If you've got a program that's ripe for an RCT, it's well-developed, it's been field tested, and it has some prior promising evidence, it's worth doing some creative thinking to think, you know, could we do, a, could we do an RCT of this program? David Anderson from Arnold Ventures. Dave, thanks so much for being with us and for sharing your observations and advice. Thanks, Annie. This has been fun. <laughs>